welcome to Get Better at Business. I'm Travis Richards, and you and I are going to spend the next 20-ish minutes learning powerful lessons from brilliant people that can help us improve our companies, teams, and careers. Couldn't find any brilliant people for this episode, and so we've got my buddy, uh, Dr. Chris Taylor, joining us. Uh, Chris is a friend of mine. He is an author, a podcast host, a scotch aficionado, and he is also a licensed professional counselor. Dr. Taylor, welcome, my friend. Thank you for being here and joining us. Thanks, buddy. I'm like pumped. This is such a pro setup you have. Well, I appreciate that. And it's, you know, I know that you've got a podcast yourself that we'll get more into the subject matter on that. So we actually have Dr. Taylor for two episodes. In the second one, we are going to get more into his specific area of expertise. We're going to talk about mental health, which is a really huge issue that is we are surrounded by every day. You know, like they say that if you're a fish, the water is the last thing that you notice. I think that our society is uh, dealing with that from a mental health perspective. And so we're going to take a deep dive on how that is affecting our careers and lives and businesses uh, in the next one. So, uh, but for this one, Chris has got a really cool business origin story. And so we're going to get, we're going to, yeah, you know, kind of like Batman, but He's a counselor. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, okay. So, so let's get into that. So, um, you know, in in my mind, this is kind of a a story of of being courageous. Sure. You know, you just had this really, but like, I mean, it's just when as as I've gotten to know you and learn more about how you got started, that's what's always been striking to me is like kind of taking this idea that you were told by a lot of people that were in the industry of like, this is stupid, you shouldn't do this. But you trudged forward and did it anyway, and now you know y'all are growing at a really big rate. And so, kind of tell us the background. You know, I guess you know start it wherever you like. Of you know what got you interested in mental health in the first place? How you maybe decided on this as a career, and then kind of going through that journey of like arriving at that point where it was time for you to make that decision of how you really wanted to set up your business. So, I wouldn't say I have a, a traditional entry into the world of mental health care. I didn't have like some kind of big mental health um, event in my life or, or anyone that I'm related to, which seems to be a common story for a lot of people. For me, uh, I was just, as a kid, always really interested in fixing things and learning how things worked. I remember, you know, I loved to take apart a toaster and then I would come home and he'd be angry because I broke the toaster because I couldn't get it back together. So it was like, oh no, I got to get a new toaster. And then eventually, I got into like the VCR, and then that was like a whole nother world. Like, how are these movies working? (laughs) Uh, You know, so I was always really interested in that stuff, Uh, and that led me kind of into computers, uh, and then a few other places. But eventually, you know, the human brain, right? Which is, I think, the the world's most amazing computer uh, with all kinds of unique, fun problems us to try to figure out. Uh, so that's kind of like a roundabout sort of way and how I kind of got interested in, in this, this space of the human mind. You were originally going to join the Air Force at some point, right? Yeah, my family, uh, long history in, in the, uh, uh, the military. Actually, I'm a son of the American Revolution. I have uh, the lineage pointing back like 14 generations or something. So it's, it's pretty interesting. I opted not to go into the military. Uh, I learned how to fly when I was in high school. I got my pilot's license when I was in high school, something I really enjoyed, loved doing, loved being in the air. Uh, and um, 
uh, I really wanted to go into the Air Force. Uh, so I, I, I applied to the Air Force Academy, a lot of other places. I ended up deciding on going to Texas A&M University. And when I was there, I, I, I fell in love with philosophy. I got introduced to some philosophy courses as electives, and I just kind of fell in love with it. And um, that sort of led me down a, a moral conundrum, ethical conundrum. I don't know. I, I just was no longer really passionate about the military anymore. Also, the, yep. the Air Force was going in a different direction at that time. As far as pilots, uh, they were they were moving more towards a drone yep. strike force, and I didn't want to play video games uh, <laughs> for my career, right? Uh, I also knew that if I wasn't doing that, I would have been a logistics officer, and I just, you know, that just didn't sound exciting. So, yeah. Uh, so I, I ended up just kind of really wrestling with that um, at this at this point at, at Texas A and M. I'm studying philosophy of all things. Uh, you know, I go to like the most conservative school to <laughs> 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 study philosophy. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I went to A and M also, and I, I can honestly say that I don't think that I ever met a single philosopher. I never remember. You know, it's like you're in college, and you just like every time you yeah. go to the bar, or you're out with you know like you know, dancing and you're trying to, you know, meet somebody or whatever. It's always just like, Hey, like, what's your major? And it's like, no one ever came back with philosophy. No one. So, no one. Yeah. There's like eight of us. And we were in the basement <laughs> of the Fulton building, <laughs> like two professors, <laughs> like, the entire, like our graduation ceremony was like five minutes, <laughs> but, uh, but no, it was great. And uh, that's where I was, I was taking 19th century philosophy courses at the time, which is when we get into kind of the world of existentialism and, and some of those things. And, I just really fell in love with that space of thought uh, and and just kind of couldn't rationalize or, or really anymore imagine or vision myself wearing, uh, you know, the blue uniform anymore. So I, I, I stayed in the Corps of Cadets uh, for the whole four years, which is an amazing experience, um, and, and opted to kind of, you know, go a different route in my life. It was a really hard choice. I uh, didn't really know what was going to come of it, uh, but that's kind of what I did. Yeah. So you graduated with a philosophy degree. And I guess at this point, had you already decided that it's like, dude, mental health, counseling, something like that, that, that had you already decided that it's like, hey, this is what I want to do? I, I didn't even know there were professional counselors. Interesting. At that point in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I never met one. I didn't know that that was a thing. And so is this, and so is this what led you to go to grad school where you're just like, okay, I have this degree in philosophy. I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. I guess I'll just exactly. keep going. I guess I'll just keep going to school. I applied to Yale to get a PhD in philosophy. And someone was like, why do you want to do that? I was like, I don't know. I guess I could teach philosophy. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yale did not accept me for that program. Uh, they went with other candidates. So, okay. So <laughs> Yale made their miscalculation by not letting you know. <laughs> no, I think they calculated. <laughs> they did a good job with that one. Okay, no, so, I, all right. Where, where, did you, where did you end up? I kind of, like, stumbled through these last two years of college. No idea what I want to do with my life. A lot of my friends at the time were really encouraging me in this space that they always felt very safe talking to me about their problems or struggles. They never felt judged or directed or that I had like an agenda. They just always felt like, man, like I really feel good talking to you about stuff. And so somebody suggested that I do that for money. <laughs> but you could do this for money. And then uh, my pastor at the time actually said, Hey, have you heard of the school, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary? Uh, they have a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, counseling program. 
So I didn't really know that that was right for me. So I kind of ran off for a year. Uh, I did. I did. I applied like like seventy schools. I think I got in uh, several, but A and M was where or DTS was was on there, and they were happy to let me defer that acceptance for a, a year or so, so I could kind of figure my life out. So I ran down to the Florida Keys. I'm originally from Florida, so I ran down to the Florida Keys, spent some time there working as a rescue diver, uh, and then um, you know just like working for tips on the boats and you know. Yeah. Basically, like drinking beer all night, you know? <laughs> waking up at six a.m. and doing it all over again, uh, trying to figure out what I want to do in my life. Uh, and then I decide that you know maybe I, I do want to give this um, give this mental health road a, a, a look see. So I come back and I and I go to work for a, a CPS. Uh, this is still in Florida. I moved back home to Jackson. Yeah, CPS like Child Protective Services. Yeah, Child Protective okay. Services. Okay. Go to work for them for the back half. That's like six eight months. I'm like, uh, until uh, I could move to DTS to start my formal master's program. So you get out with it. So you have a master's and a PhD. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you get done with your with the educational bit of it, and were you just it, it, were you just like working in somebody else's like you know were you going to start your own practice? I guess like you know once the educational piece is over and you're like all right well hey now I've got to make a living. Were you married at this time? But by, by by then. No, no, I was, I was single, <laughs> single but, I, but I think that was probably a good and a bad thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but, you know, family or not, you're just kind of like, look, at at some point you're just like, Hey, you know, if, if you want those to be options, you need some, you know, felt like you needed some income, you need to be able to do that. So like, what were you, you know, you know, I mean, like, what was your kind of monetization plan whenever you get out of there? What did you want to start your own practice at the very beginning? Or were you going to just be working for somebody else? What were your options? Yeah, even? Great question. So. I, I, while I was in grad school, I worked for one of my professors uh, at his private practice. Uh, basically, was his office manager, practice manager to some degree. So I, I did that pretty close to full time and went to school full time as best I could manage those two. So that's kind of where I learned the entire inner workings of, of therapy. Uh, and he was a psychologist, so it was a lot of legal stuff. So I got to see the whole inner workings of, of that whole world, which was very interesting. Also taught me a lot about what I want, did not want to do with my career. So, okay. What were the, what were, what were those like things that you observed as you're working for your professor and you just like, just kind of the red flags where you're just like, dude, I, okay, I don't want to do this or I don't want to do that. What were those things that you observed and that you saw? Yeah. I mean, a part of his business, business plan or business model really is, is very old school in the sense of like, I will work very hard and grow and name and notoriety and expertise. And I will charge more per hour. Okay. Uh, you know, as, as high as the market can bear, uh, to where we're charging 300, $500 an hour, you know, to do work on these high profile, high conflict divorce cases. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just didn't want the world of, of everything needs to be done right now when the attorney wants it. Yeah. At the end of the case, somebody is going to hate you because you're deciding who the kids live with. So someone's going to be upset with you. There's a world that I just don't want to be in. I just didn't want to work that hard every day um, to, to, to just help, you know, a few people. Uh, and then at the end of it, say I'm done and retire and that's it. So what was the, al- what, what alternative did you see at that point? What, like, what, what, what was the other option? I mean, it seems like, cause that's kind of the way that the, that the industry worked, right? It wasn't just your professor that was doing, this is just kind of the way that people did it. 
Yeah, this is a very common practice. They get into, uh, you know, we get into a, a either a shell group where there are a bunch of us that are splitting uh, cost of overhead, and then we mm -hmm. work until we get enough expertise and build it up. There's smaller groups or 1099s, that kind of stuff. But in general, I think in my field, there's a lot of different ways that you can be a therapist. Uh, there are these traditional models, you know, where we build a practice, grow it up, uh, increase our fees over time, because, you know, you're, you're worth that, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, when you walk away from it, you can only help as many people as you have work hours in the day. And, and in order for you to do better uh, with your life, to set aside for retirement, to take care of your children, to give them better lives, all those things, you have to, by necessity, raise rates. And you have to raise them well above what insurance would pay. So that means that you start to become unaffordable. And this is where the majority of the field leans, is in this space where it's not really affordable for everybody. It, it, the, the analogy I like to use is that it's like, uh, uh, you know, therapy on average in, in, in DFW is $150 an hour, right? Now, if you got to come once a week, every month, is four sessions a month, right? That's $600 a month. That is the lease for a brand new Audi A6. Yeah. It's a luxury car. We're telling people that, that therapy is a luxury good by pricing it that way. And it's mm -hmm. just not a system that works well for anybody. Nobody's benefiting from this. Yeah. So let's hear, just kind of like, look, I think this is a good time to add a little bit of context and to like sort of show people where we're going. So like, just explain real quickly for, for the people, like, how does your practice work? Like how, like the, the way that you, the way that you have decided to do business, like just high level, what does that, what does your company and your system look like? Absolutely. So Taylor Counseling Group does a few things very differently. Uh, one thing we do very differently is we are highly specialized as a general therapy practice. So what that means is we only offer three what we can call products or services, individual therapy, couples therapy, and family therapy. Because we only offer those three, and we like to say we're the in and out burger of therapy, your single, double, and your triple, right? Uh, because we only offer those three, we're very efficient at being able to offer them. So our support staff is, is very efficient in being able to manage those. We have direct relationships with the insurance companies based off of one, what's called a CPT code, just one code, really, essentially, instead of all of these other things that might be going on. And so we refer out for psychology, we refer out for psychiatry, we refer out for high specialized counseling needs, right, like EMDR, things like that. So because of that, that means that our back office, our cost of doing business is extremely low. Our payroll is very high because we treat our therapists like rock stars. And so, it, it, okay. And so that that's another thing too. So, like the way that you like just kind of compare contrast. Like if you had the kind of that cost share model uh, that you were talking about before, where you've got four or five counselors that are sharing some office space and some back office support, versus what you guys do. Like, kind of how is that different from a therapist's perspective? Like for your employees working for Taylor Counseling versus working for somebody else. Just like how is that? How are those different? Right. So what's different about it is that the therapists themselves don't. They're not involved in any of. They're not involved in any part of the process, uh, the business side of it, or the client onboarding side of it. We are a concierge practice, so we do everything for them. They're W-2 employees. They get paid set salaries. 
they get PTO, they get health insurance, dental, paid time off, um, uh, short-term disability, all that great stuff. And an amazing support staff that handles all that for them. And that support staff also doesn't have to worry about the cost either because their jobs are the same. Yeah. And so, and if you're in like one of these other practices or whatever, like basically you would get paid kind of like, you know, it's sort of like, I mean, you're still responsible for like, Hey, if you, you get paid more, if you see a hundred patients versus if you see 50, whereas you guys, it's like, Hey, this is your salary. You're, you're here to work like a, you know, kind of a traditional employment agreement. And it's not like, you know, they don't have that pressure of like, I've got to keep getting more clients, more clients, more clients, or raise my rate, raise my rate so that I can take a bigger cut. Exactly. They cannot make more money with us by seeing more people. Uh, and because we don't allow that and we de-incentivize that thought process so much, what we see is that there is no competition. It, it, it fosters this, this environment of collaboration where everybody wants to work together for the client's best good. And nobody really cares about how much money they're going to take home from the process. Or, or if I was more involved in this case, if I saw both mom, dad, and little Timmy, then I would be making three times as much. But that's, that's faulty thinking. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so we take that equation out of it and we give them salaries that are essentially guaranteed. Uh, and, and then we just watch them work together and do what they love. Yeah. So the, you talking to me right now, this sounds like it makes tons of sense. Yeah. But whenever you were... We take all major insurances and we have a private pay rate of $90 a session. That is 60% under market rate. It sounds like this is working really well. It sounds like this is something that is very effective. But whenever you were starting out and you were telling people about this idea of like, hey, this is kind of this business model that I'm thinking about employing in this industry, it's like the feedback that you got was everybody was like, dude, it will not work. Yeah, you're crazy. What were the reasons that people cited whenever you said this and they were just like, no, it just won't work? Like, why did, you know, these people that I guess theoretically should have known better than you, yeah. why were they saying that it wouldn't? Too complex. It was too complex of an idea. Nobody could really wrap their head around why it would work. It is radically different. And therapy has the, the psychology field as a whole has a bit of an aging workforce. Uh, so you got to think we got a lot of older people that are aging out and we got a lot of younger, newer people coming in. So the new people all want to learn from the older people, but, but uh, you know, the older people have a very specific way of doing things and that they want it done this way. This is their, their best way. I, I still remember sitting around a table with one of my professors uh, in, in, the, in the business that I was working in, the practice I was working in, and they were talking about purchasing a, a, a yellow book ad, a yellow pages ad, like in the actual yellow pages. What, what, year, was, what year was this? 2009, 2010, you know? I mean, it's obviously not as, not as still. It was, I was like, did you not know about Google? Like, yeah. The internet was a thing by then. The internet was definitely a thing. So this was just kind of an example of sort of their third train of thought. I remember one of my professors telling me one time, as a grad student, by the way, that I should never charge less than $100 a session because I'm worth at least that. I agree with him from the concept of my worth, uh, but I disagreed with him uh, on the concept of, of we should never charge less because we're pricing out so many people from getting help. So you have these ideas that are kind of running contrary to this. And I think that everybody that, you know, whether you're like, you know, like whether you're an entrepreneur or you're working in, an, in a company or whatever, you have some idea about the way that 
you know, you, you come up with some kind of a big idea and you're really excited about it. And then you start feeding it out to people and you just get all of this like negative feedback. Like, no, you shouldn't do this. You can't do this, whatever. Now you had the courage to go out and do it. And so I guess like, I mean, I know that you're a pretty confident dude, but, but certainly you just, there was at least some fear, some anxiety about just like, this might, this might not work, but it would, but I'm just going to try it anyway. So like, what was that like for you kind of taking that step of like, I know this sounds like a crazy idea, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's a great question. I've had to do that several times in my life. I had to bet on myself several times in my life. Uh, so I think at this point, it was a little, a little easier for me to, to say, okay, you know, I'm just going to bet on me again. Uh, kind of tired of people telling me that you can't do this. Uh, that happened with me in grad school. That happened with me in, in uh, a portion of my undergrad. That happened in high school. Uh, that's happened with me several parts of my life. So I, I started just to kind of lean into more of this, like, well, I, I'm okay if you think I'm crazy. I'm going to do it anyways. Um, that doesn't mean it was less terrifying. It's still absolutely terrifying. For me at the time, I didn't have a whole lot to lose. I didn't have kids, you know. Um, I mean, I had a condo, uh, which would have been terrible to lose, and a dog I had to support. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know how much dog food is, man? It's yeah. not as much as diapers. Yeah. Diapers. <laughs> yeah I was going to say, so like, I think that that's, you know, I think maybe that's kind of the takeaway is that like, probably by some measure, I don't know what those other bets that you were making leading up to that, but it sounds like this one was maybe a little bit higher stakes than some of those that you had made in the past. And so it, it sounds like a, a big part of the formula of like, hey, if you want to kind of develop this ability to block out the naysayers and trust what you know and bet on yourself, it's kind of like, well, hey, start developing this discipline. It's almost like anything else where it's like, you know, like working out or, you know, just, hey, just maybe you don't have the strength to lift 300 pounds today, but go to the gym and lift 100 pounds and then just keep adding on and just kind of build up that muscle. Is that, is being, am, I, am I close to the mark there with it when it comes to kind of being courageous and taking that leap? Absolutely. I think that that's a part of it. And I think that's true now with some of the decisions I have to make as far as launching our, our new back office company. A colleague and I are developing a mental health app. Uh, and, you know, these are all like bigger, bigger yeah. gambles, bigger risks, right? Because uh, there's a lot more to lose in them than there was with me starting Taylor Counseling Group with just me and like one or two other people uh, back in 2015. So, you know, now we're talking with the app, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line. So, yeah, so the, the bets get bigger for sure. And it gets a little bit easier to kind of lean into them, I think, because you just have more confidence in yourself. But it does create room for arrogance. Uh, and it does create room for hubris, where you just kind of think that it's going to work because you, you will will it to work. So I, I want to caution people when they, when they have these big choices, people are telling you no. You know, listen one and try, yeah. like, are they correct? Because uh, I, I listened to my professor at first. Yeah, hundred dollar rate. I, I I did what the rest of them were doing at first, uh, and then looked around and said, you know, these things aren't working. There's got to be a better way. And then I did the research. I did the math. Literally, uh, did a, a huge table of, of of pricing and you know, did this this whole pivot table and. And came out with this this magic number of ninety dollars, and thinking like I can make this work uh, if we do it certain ways. 
All right. The, before we wrap up, just kind of last question on like, as it relates to this, I guess, did you calculate the, I mean, like, obviously, like, you know, you could calculate the risk of, you know, I mean, you're, you could somehow get your hands on the risk of like, hey, if I try this and it doesn't work, this is like, this is what it would cost me. Like you said, you know, you had, you know, you're, you got a couple of people that you're going into business with and there's some risk that's inherent with that. Start cost. I think we signed a five-year lease, you know, that kind of stuff, which, which my backup plan, I did have a backup plan. I had a plan B. My plan B was, okay, those people don't want to do it. It's not working. I'll just be like everybody else and charge $150 an hour and stuff. So, okay. So you, so you had that, I guess, but like what part of your calculation was looking at the risk of not doing this? Because it's like you had this philosophy about affordable health care, affordable mental health care, you know, doing a model that made sense to you and that you thought would be better for all these people or whatever. Like, I guess as you were making that decision, was it just that like, did you calculate the cost or the risk of not doing, not taking the leap? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it speaks deeply to my passion and my purpose. Uh, I don't know that I would be a happy person had I not have done it. So what advice, like there's, I think that there's a lot of people that are out there that have maybe not grooved that muscle, you know, like, you know, certainly I, I certainly fall into that category of like, you know, I just, it's real easy to get timid and to fall back and just be like, no, I just, maybe it's just easier to not do it. If you're trying to get into that groove of being able to make smart decisions about taking risk and taking the leap and trusting your gut and knowing and just trusting what you know, like what advice would you give people? to improve, improve their abilities in that area? Starting small, smaller risks and, and jumping, you know, try to get away from analysis by paralysis. Don't be stupid about it. Don't make stupid choices, but jump into the unknown after you've done a little bit of research. Yeah. Well, and then I, I think that another thing that will probably help, and this will be something we can cover in this coming up episode about mental health is that I think that it is, I would assume it is probably easier to take those small steps and to develop this capability if you're looking after your own mental health and looking after yourself. And so uh, very excited to get into that topic with you uh, here coming up on this next episode. So big takeaway, if you want to get better about taking risks, start small, be smart, and don't talk yourself into whenever you start winning, don't convince yourself that you can't lose. <laughs> yeah, and jump. Just jump. At some point you have to do it. All right, man. I well, think came up with that at some point along the way. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've heard that somewhere. Just do it. Yeah, that's that's good. We should trademark that. That sounds like a really good we should make that into a tagline for something. Make All right. All right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for for this. I really Really appreciate your wisdom and, and you sharing your story with us. Uh, those of you guys that are listening, thank you so much. I really appreciate that you've spent this time with us. Uh, we're very interested in your feedback, and so we would very greatly appreciate a uh, a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you consume your podcasts. If you have feedback uh, or ideas, please uh, leave commentary for us, and we will have some information about Chris and the Taylor Counseling Group and where you can find him and all of the information and wisdom that he is sharing with the world. We'll have that in the show notes. So Chris, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, bud. All right. Thanks.
Hey there, Travis Richards, one last time. Thank you so much for investing your time and tuning into the show. I really hope that this was helpful to you, and I would appreciate your feedback very much. If you have some notes on what specifically from this episode was useful, or if you have ideas on what we can do better in the future. If you would like to support the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps other people find us. And also just recommend this to a friend. To get in touch, visit us at www.getbetteratbusiness.com. That's all for this episode, and I hope that you'll join us again next time. Thanks.